Good morning. It is a singular honor for me to introduce to you Professor Hugh Williamson. You can read in the bulletin this morning of his distinguished scholarly career, which includes degrees and honors at the highest echelons of academic achievement. His formal training was taken at Cambridge, where he immediately joined the teaching staff and worked his way up the professorial ranks before being appointed by Queen Elizabeth as Regis Professor of Hebrew at Oxford, a professorship founded by Henry VIII in 1546. He was named Fellow of the British Academy in 1993 and Officer of the Order of the British Empire in 2015. In these few minutes of introduction, I could also mention an impressive list of monographs, articles, chapters in books, and commentaries, all of which we are read with profit and respected by his peers in Old Testament studies. Most of you are aware, at least you uh, second and third years are aware, of his important commentaries on Ezra and Nehemiah, the books of Chronicles, and his ongoing work on the, in the International Critical Commentary series on Isaiah, two volumes of which are now available. In many ways, you can take up one of these commentaries and see exactly what, in my opinion, a commentary ought to be. This introduction would not be complete without drawing attention to Hugh's contributions to the church. He shared at the Theta Phi induction banquet last night about the times in his life when others urged him to pivot away from high-end level of research that he was doing and get more involved in what we might call hands-on direct ministry. He had had success as a young adult with children's ministries, which was a detail that I was, it really warmed my heart to hear last night about his success as a young adult in ministry and was quite effective in that effort. And so he is gifted in disciple making. But his testimony last night was the way God had clearly directed and called him to Christian research, a distinct calling in ministry which is much needed in the church today. He has inspired a host of students and colleagues in biblical studies, most of us working away in slightly less exalted ivory towers when compared to Oxford University. <clears throat> to remain faithful, he has inspired us to remain faithful to the calling to which God has called us and to strive for excellence in all we do in service to the church. I've always found Hugh a warm, and supportive counselor in the field of ministry defined as Christian scholarship. I just would finish the introduction by saying, Hugh doesn't need to be here today. Being in Asbury for three days, speaking four times, is not something that will enhance his career. It's not as though he will be promoted when the queen hears that he's been here and ministered to us. <laughs> Maybe, maybe a knighthood or something would be an offering after he's been here. No, he's taken valuable time of writing and research from his altar of service, which is a desk in Suffolk where he lives, writing on Isaiah, to be here with us. And I believe it's because he believes in the ministry we're about here at Asbury in Christian scholarship for the church and in preparation for ministry to the church. And so it is a true delight to welcome Professor Williamson back to the pulpit of Estes Chapel, and we await anxiously what God has for us in this moment. Well, thank you for that uh, overly generous uh, introduction. It's a pleasure to be with you. I was here some years ago 
and I recognize one or two faces here, uh, people who are about as old as me, uh, but uh, it's a great privilege and pleasure to be sharing with you today. And I was given very specific instructions uh, by David Bauer about what I'm supposed to do this morning. I'm not to preach you a sermon. I'm not to give you a lecture, but I'm to talk about, in a sort of academic way, how you sort of preach on a passage. I don't know whether I can fulfill that brief, but that's what I'm trying to do, uh, based on, of course, 1 Samuel chapter 3. When I was a boy aged seven, I was sent away to boarding school. My parents thought that they were going to be living, going in a few years to live in Nigeria, and so it would be better to start boarding at the start of the school, so I went age seven, which seemed a very young age at the time. And in the chapel, we had chapel services every day, it was a, a Christian school, although the greatest compliment I can pay to it is that I never realized that at the time. Between the ages of 7 and 13, I was in that school, and never once did anyone ever say, you don't do that, this is a Christian school. It just was a Christian school, and it imbued everything that we did. Anyway, in chapel on Sundays, when we had a slightly longer service, six of us in a sort of order, there were 83 boys, by the way, in this school. I was number 82, it was alphabetical, so William, so I was number 82, and my friend Woodruff was 83, and that was the sum total of us. So we had six each week, were invited to choose a, a song from a book that we had in those days, it was called the CSSM Chorus Book. This was little songs that we sang uh, uh, for children and so on, and I tell you, there's a lot more theology in some of those children's choruses than in some modern hymns that I get invited to sing uh, today. And when it was ever my turn, I always chose number 318. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Speak right now some message to meet my need, which thou only dost know. Speak now through thy holy word and make me see some wonderful truth thou hast to show to me. So our passage, 1 Samuel 3, is turned into a lovely song that I was my favorite as a child. I guess many of you have either sat through Sunday school lessons or perhaps even delivered Sunday school lessons on this passage. And what do you do? Samuel didn't yet know the Lord. So he's told by Eli, when the, when the voice comes next time, say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And actually what happens, he says, speak, for your servant is, because he didn't yet know the Lord. And we make a lovely sort of devotional little thing out of how this young man, <coughs> Samuel, came to know the Lord and to listen to what he had to say, or something like that. <coughs> and that's all very well and good. But if we want to make a sermon out of this passage, I suggest that there's a lot more to be done than just what I would call a blessed thought from a nugget. I was talking with Professor Orwell over lunch yesterday. He's writing on the books of Kings, and we shared our experience that anyone who preaches on the historical books in the Old Testament tends to go in for what I call nugget theology. That's to say, you preach a sermon on this little lovely bit, <coughs> and then maybe, you know, 12 chapters further on, there's another lovely little bit, and then you get to 1 Kings 18, and everybody preaches on Elijah on Mount Carmel and all that. You know, that's terrific. These are what I call nuggets. 
and we preach on them without any consideration for any wider context. <clears throat> and I want to suggest to you that in preparing to preach on a passage like this, in your preparation, not in the sermon necessarily, but in your preparation, you will want to consider at least three wider contextual matters that will feed into the sermon. First of all, and I suppose in a way the primary one, is the literary context. What is the purpose of this passage in this book? Which raises the question, which book is it? My former colleague John Barton wrote a wonderful article called, What is a Book? You know, we have to read the Bible now. You're reading it as a book. What is a book? Is it one Samuel? Or is it one and two Samuel? Or do you, like me, think that there's still much to be said for the theory of a Deuteronomistic history, where you've got the book of Deuteronomy in some shape or form at the start, laying out how the people should live when they got into the land, so they start outside the land, they go into the land, and God gives them the land, and they go through various stages of development from a tribal society through to a monarchy and all the rest of it, and, and so it goes on. And at each point, people are judged by the way in which they do or don't keep the book of Deuteronomy. If you're a good king, if you remove the high places, you're a bad king if you don't. That's Deuteronomy. And of course, the kingdom of Israel came to a sad end in 2 Kings 17. They didn't call it that in those days, but that's what we call it, 2 Kings 17. And you get six verses explaining that the events, the fall of Samaria, and then you get about 30 or 40 verses. All this happened because, and as you read it through, basically because they didn't keep God's law of Deuteronomy. And then you go on with Judah, and you end up at the end outside the land again. So here's a terrific work from outside the land to being outside the land. And no matter how long these stories were conserved and whatever sources and ancient records the author or authors was drawing on, we don't know, we can speculate about that. But this story was included in the final work because it had something to say to people who are outside the land, God's promised land. Why are, why, why are they not where they should be, enjoying God's bountiful gifts in the land? And if you start to think of this story in that wide context, and then in the narrower context that I'll come to in a minute, maybe that makes some suggestions as to how we can apply a passage like this. Secondly, as well as the literary context, I think we want to consider the political context in the narrative. We're coming towards the end of the period that we call the period of the judges. And Samuel, in many ways, was the last of the judges. And, of course, he institutes the kingship, there's some argy-bargy about whether they should or shouldn't have a king, but they get one in the end. And in 1 Samuel 12, Samuel gives a speech he says, right, now, up until this time, we've had the judges, and he mentions some of them. He doesn't mention himself, but he's the last of them. But now we've got a king, and it's going to be like this for the next phase of our life under God. 
and that's the way the Deuteronomic history is divided up. And at the end of each section, as it were, when there's a change, whether it's after they get into the land and Joshua at the end of the book of Joshua, or Samuel here, or, or wherever, there's a sort of speech or a talk which sort of says, this is how we've got to here, and now we're going on to the next stage. So this was a time of tremendous social change. There are learned articles that you can go and read about how you move from an agrarian society to a more complex, interdependent economic structure and how a king develops and all that. You're moving, society is moving after a couple of hundred years of very scattered and dispersed kind of life to a more cohesive society under a monarchy. So there's a time of political change here. And thirdly, it's a time of religious change in the institutions uh, of the people. Uh, we saw in our reading how the house of Eli, who had been, as it were, the religious leaders, if you like, up at that time, uh, had started to uh, uh, fall apart, and God has new plans for the future. And these horizons, it seems to me, get encapsulated in our chapter where you've got Eli representing the old order, but an order that has fallen by the wayside. If you read the earlier chapter, you remember how it all got corrupted under Eli's sons, who are using their position of religious authority for their own advantage. They're dipping into the pot and getting the best things out for themselves first, which they didn't ought to do. Uh, and so Eli, as it were, represents the end of the order that has become corrupt and neglectful. And on the other hand, you've got Samuel, who is going to be used of God to initiate the new order. But in the first verse that was read, he's called a boy. The boy, Samuel. Now, it's a, those of you who do Hebrew, I gather some of you do a bit of Hebrew here, and I'm delighted to hear it. That's a na'ar sometimes translated a young man. What it really means, I understand it, is somebody who is still in a dependent relationship, usually in the family, before the person perhaps gets married and sets up a household of his own, but sometimes in a servant capacity. can be a, a you know, a Nehemiah has people like this, they're his groupies, his heavies, you know, and they're dependent on Nehemiah, he's the sort of mobster, and, and he, they're his gang. <laughs> it's a na'ar. So here you have Samuel, who is going to initiate the new order, who is just in a very, very dependent role still, dependent, of course, on Eli, his superior, if you like. Now, such times of radical social or religious change are often marked, aren't they, by major events and what I call grandstanding characters. I don't know enough about recent American history to be able to give you an example from your end, and it wouldn't be my place to do so anyway, but I can do from my own country. When I was uh, a bit younger, 1979, our country was in a mess. 
the trade unions had exceeded the powers that they legitimately have, and they had gone on strike, and we had what we called a winter of discontent. No rubbish bins were emptied, so there was rubbish lying in the streets, and nothing was happening. And it was the end of a long period of a, what we call a Labour government, sort of more left-wing government. And if you had studied that as an economic historian, you would know that that was not sustainable. There is bound to be a change in that order. I mean, you, you know, it's inevitable that there will be a change. Now, it so happens that the instrument of that change was a woman called Margaret Thatcher, a grandstanding character if ever I saw one. Now, if it hadn't been Mrs. Thatcher, it would have been somebody else. The change, the development was inevitable. Things couldn't go on as they were, but on the sort of surface level, you have a character who emerges who uh, introduces that change. But in this case, it's a little bit different, isn't it? In this case, it's not so much Samuel, but the focus in this chapter is on the word of the Lord. It starts out by saying that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. And when eventually Samuel hears what God has to say towards the end of the chapter, I think the word of the Lord pops up about six times. It becomes really quite a dominant theme. So the focus is on the word of the Lord and this young, dependent man who doesn't yet know the Lord is really just God's agent and instrument in it. And by the end of the passage, of course, Samuel is established as a prophet and everybody recognizes that and he is the one who is able to take the nation on in its new development. Okay, this is all preparatory reading for your sermon, okay? The question is, how are you going to preach this? Now, you have professors of homiletics here, and I have to be very careful what I say. I never went to a homiletics lecture in my life. I was taught to preach as I mentioned uh, yesterday evening, by a man much older than me, who before he became a Christian was a heavyweight boxing champion. He was the Southern Area's champion and was in, in line for a British title fight. Then he got converted, and to start with, he carried on fighting. He had a great sense of humor. He couldn't read or write then. He learned that later, learned to read the Bible. And boy, he knew the Bible better than, I guess, almost anybody in this room. Do you want to know why he stopped boxing? <laughs> he carried on. He told me there were two things. First of all, he was reading, the, of course, the authorized version. And it said in Timothy that a bishop should not be a striker. <laughs> so he said, if it's good enough for a bishop, it's good enough for me. And the other thing was, in the sort of changing room, he was waiting for a fight. One of the elders in the assembly where he went came in and said, Stan, we're going to pray now. And he said, we're going to pray. And he started to pray to the Lord that Stan would have the courage to go out and wallop the other guy. So, <laughs> and Stan said, I was kind of looking through like this. 
and he realized there was an inconsistency here. He didn't have to be told he saw it. Anyway, he's the person I, I guess, I worked with him for a year and, and, and probably learned more about preaching from him because he wasn't an academic, but he could communicate. And he loved the Lord and he knew his Bible and you'd never heard anyone like him. So, the first time I preached and he was listening, he said to me afterwards, he said, that the material was fantastic. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, you've got to sort of order it in a way that the people will hear it. And Stan usually made three points, all beginning with the same letter. Now, I know that people laugh about that, and probably you're told that you're not to do it under any circumstances. Well, I do it under usual circumstances still. I find it helpful to actually order my thoughts on the passage, what I want to get across. And it's funny how many people, after a sermon, even if I use three points beginning with the same letter, they, you know, they joke about it as they go out, and they say, but I remember it. Don't necessarily take that on board, but please bear in mind the difference between an article in Vetus Testamentum and a sermon. Your article in Vetus Testamentum will take this passage and will perhaps discuss whether form critically it's a prophetic call narrative which lacks certain vital ingredients of a prophetic call narrative or whether it's a dream account, except that it isn't a dream, and you will no doubt sort that out and you'll publish your learned article and may the Lord bless you for it. It's interesting, and it's helpful. And you need to do that work. But the congregation don't really want to know. What do they want to know? Well, let me suggest three points you might want to make in reflecting on this passage. First of all, that what happens is unexpected. We've already seen how verse 1 is unexpected, that it's, the focus is, is, is that the word of the Lord is rare, and it's going to come to this young man, Samuel, not to the expected agent, Eli. And the obvious thing we learn from that is that the word of God can bring life and dynamic into unexpected places. God doesn't have to work through the people that you expect him to work through. He may work through them because he's very gracious. But it's not the only way in which, which God can work. And so I think we want to focus a little bit on the unusual or the unexpected elements here because they can both challenge and encourage. There's a sort of hierarchy that develops in most congregations, isn't there? You know, the people kind of, it's, it's, I don't know, just automatically know their place. How many times have I spoken, and they say, oh, well, I only do the cleaning. What do you mean, only do the cleaning? <laughs> As though that didn't matter. I know somebody who got converted through doing cl church cleaning. She was um, a cleaner for a woman who had a bit of a job on the rotor. 
and the woman was unwell, so she said to Pam, Pam, would you mind going and dusting my bunch of pews this week? So Pam went in and cleaned those pews. And she's real Suffolk. And she said, well, I thought if I cleaned the pews, perhaps I ought to sit on them. <laughs> so she came and sat on a pew. And she's been sitting on that pew ever since, praise the Lord. <laughs> Only cleaning. Oh, no, I, I, I sing in the choir. I couldn't possibly speak. I know somebody who was converted through being in the choir. She's another friend in the same church. And she joined the choir because she loved singing. Then she started wondering what she was singing about. And listening to what the bloke was saying in the bits when the rest of the choir were, you know, reading their magazines or whatever. <laughs> Unexpected. Secondly, and it follows on from what I've already said, unassuming. Samuel was just ministering there. He slept on the floor in the temple by the ark. He hadn't read priestly legislation yet. You know, and when he hears somebody calling, he assumes it must be Eli because he's the boss. But the story is how this Na'ar, this young man, changes to be a widely respected prophet of the Lord. And thirdly, when he hears what God has to say to him, it's unprecedented. And this I find very challenging because you need to actually refer back to chapter 2, the previous chapter, to get the full message that Samuel had to bring to Eli. And it doesn't only say that Eli's house is coming to an end, but it talks about the future and there's going to be uh, a, a new dynasty. I will raise up, this is verse 35, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to all that's in my heart and mind and I'll build him a sure house and he will go in and out before my anointed, the king presumably, forever. This is looking forward and many people think to Zadok, and Solomon and, and, and all that. That's an argument one can have in a discussion. But what really challenges me is what comes a little bit before that. And I wrote it down. I must make sure I got it right. Uh, yeah, verse 30. Because of what's been going on, therefore the Lord God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. I promised. God promised that. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me should be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. God says, I promised that your house would continue in the priesthood forever. But I'm now withdrawing that promise, or I'm changing that. And that's something that isn't very often commented on. I don't know about Methodists, whether you believe in the promises of God or not. 
but our faith, I thought, stood on them. So how are you going to preach that? Well, please bear in mind that ultimately, when this book was completed, if our supposition of composition is right, this was addressed to people who had just lost their land, whose temple had been destroyed, whose Davidic monarchy after several hundred years had come to an end, whose promised land was no longer theirs. And in that context, there's a sense in which they identify with all the failings of Eli and all that and are being shown a new way, not an expected way, not a grandstanding way, but God's way through his word. And the New Testament reading we had talked about how in Christ all God's promises are yes. I once heard it put this way, that God sent his son to die on the cross so that you might be delivered from your sin and be at peace with God. Do you think you are so important, so important that something you do that is wrong can override and supersede what God has done in Christ, his beloved son. So, this passage seems to come into tension with our New Testament perspective in Christ, but I think it's a, a creative tension because it speaks to people in that situation of exile when they feel rejected, feel unwanted, feel unloved. And these this passage gives expression to that. And we see how, through Samuel, a new way forward is opened up. My time is nearly up, I see. I didn't write a script, so I have to be careful. I couldn't prime it. Let me just conclude by saying, if we take those three points, that it's, we can focus on what's unexpected, on the character who is unassuming, on the word of God, which is unprecedented, how do we apply that in today's world when we've expounded the passage? And it seems to me that there are many ways in which in many parts of the world today we face comparable times of distress and uncertainty. And perhaps this passage would encourage us to think a little bit differently about how God's people should respond to that. God's Word comes to us differently now. I mean, I don't know. I've never been woken up when I was sleeping on the floor by a voice saying, Hugh, Hugh! <laughs> Maybe you have. I, I, I doubt it. So God's Word comes to us differently and I am neither an Eli nor a Samuel. We're ordinary people, and we seek to serve in our congregations and in our churches. And I suppose because of that, we're often tempted to look elsewhere for transformative leadership. You know, I expect the Archbishop of Canterbury to go out and sort it all out, or 
I don't know how the Methodists work, but you know, you must have important people. And you know, you, you look to them to do it. <coughs> but I don't think that God really wants pastors or teachers who are grandstanding. I mean, I know some. I expect you know some. And all they can, I mean, they, listen, I'm not, I am being critical, but I'm not sort of being personally critical because people don't realize what they're doing. But ultimately, their ministry is, you know, what they are doing in their church or how they are building up this organization or this thing. And all they can think of is the big event and the sort of public eye. And I find this passage a complete challenge to that mentality. And that God works often and perhaps ultimately more effectively in much quieter and unseen ways. We as Christians believe, at least I hope you do, in the incarnation. <laughs> that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That God works in our homes and in our communities with people, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus lived in Nazareth. There's only about six houses in Nazareth then, right off the beaten track. The big town was over the hill, it's called Sepphoris. Doesn't get a mention in the Bible. And for 30 years, I mean, a nobody. And then his short ministry, of course, gained a certain notoriety. He might have got into the press, but for all the wrong reasons. And then unjustly condemned to death and led out as a criminal to die on a cross. There's not much grandstanding in that. And we are called to follow him. What I've written here, unassuming service, is not therefore ineffectual. And I think that if we are faithful, as not only as individuals, but as the people of God, together, to our call to serve him faithfully by helping and serving others, maybe in response to God's word, we will see change in wonderful ways, even though we can't anticipate exactly what they'll be. So anyway, that's what I'd put a sermon together along the lines from this passage, um, and uh, I commend it to your thoughts as well. Thank you very much.